This week, we're taking issue with caucus results, primary predictions, and Commonwealth coffers. Donald Trump wins the Iowa caucus in a landslide, but now it's all eyes on the Granite State in the New Hampshire primary. And Governor Maura Healey delivers her first State of the Commonwealth address. I'm Corey. I'm Matt. And I'm Sue. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello, welcome to another edition of Taking Issue. I am joined as always by NBC10 Boston political reporter and a much warmer Matt Pritchard and NBC10 Boston political commentator and my ad issue co-host Sue O'Connell. Guys, how are we doing this week? You hit it on the head, Corey. I'm just <laughs> glad to be in a normal jacket in normal weather on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who missed it, uh, Matt did some traveling, went down to the uh, Iowa caucus in a very frigid, mm-hmm. frigid Hawkeye state. Uh, but you survived. You got all your fingers and toes. That's um, right. The winter, the winter weather gear got a good workout. So uh, glad fingers to see you Fingers and back. toes I have, but I didn't escape without Corey making fun of my cable knit sweater on. Hey, that was a nice <laughs> cable knit sweater. That was, I, a, that was a really thank nice you, cable knit sweater. I appreciate it. Um, why don't we go ahead and start there? Donald Trump wins in an absolute landslide in Iowa, taking home more than 50% of uh, caucus goers' support. Ron DeSantis eking out second place and Nikki Haley in third place. Um, you can say Trump won in a major landslide, but there's a big yeah, but attached to that. The turnout was down significantly. We don't know if that is due to the weather. It was frigid and nobody wants to have to go stand for a long time in one spot and have to travel across, you know, city and county lines to, to go caucus. Um, but it could also mean maybe there isn't as much enthusiasm, uh, from the, for the former president or his two challengers. We'll have, to, we'll have to see, you know, if, if that is the case uh, come New Hampshire where folks just have to go in and go out and just vote and, and, and be on with their day. Uh, but, Matt, you were there. What did you make? Was, was the weather truly a factor here, or do you think something else is at play? I, I do think there's two things at play, and I do think the weather is part of it. I mean, those we spoke with out there, I think, you know, a lot of people would say these are Midwesterners, these are Iowans, they're used to these kind of conditions. But every single voter that we talked to said that the conditions they were seeing that weekend were unlike they, anything they had ever seen, that this was awful, this was terrible. And honestly, you've got to remember that the caucuses take place on a Monday night at 7 o'clock. The doors are closed. If you're not in there by 7, you don't get to take part. And so not only do you have just the pain in the butt that it is to go and partake in these things, but you also have that weather playing its own factor. And like, you know, if you're sitting at home, warm next to the fire with a cup of Uh, hot cocoa. Are you really going to go out to the elementary school to cast your vote in a race that many people feel has already been decided, especially there in Iowa? No. So I think the weather does play a part in it. But then the second part of it, and you brought it up just a second ago, and it makes uh, perfect sense, is just that I think, you know, a lot of people had sort of Uh, seen this already as Donald Trump's uh, race to lose. And so that turnout just wasn't there. If not that reason, maybe at the same time that they were just exhausted uh, with politics right now, that they just didn't want to take part because politics has just become this slog to get through. The fact that we're already back in the presidential election, most people say they can't believe we're going through this all over again. They're still exhausted from 2020. So I think there's a lot of factors that went into play when you think about that turnout question. 
And, and Corey, I would put on my, my little research nerd hat. I used to do a, run a, a, a top 40 radio stations research department, and we would find out that a, it, you only needed 100 teens to answer your survey to get what teens were thinking about. It was like a waste of time to get 110 or 300 or 500 because the results were often the same as the 100. And the I'm as you know, I'm a big proponent for folks voting. I think there should be mandatory voting in the United States. But at the same time, the results of Iowa with this low, low depressed turnout matched what the polls were saying. So, um, you know, obviously it's not everybody who was in Iowa and what they think, but the people who were part going to participate, who answered the polls, uh, it actually mirrored what the actual caucus results were. So I think no harm, no foul. Well, minus one thing is just that Ron DeSantis was able to actually eke out that second place finish. I mean, a lot of the polls said it was going to be Nikki, that she had jumped up ahead of him into that second spot, and he managed to get out of Iowa with a second place finish, which truthfully is probably the reason he's still in the race today, because the amount of resources that he had dropped into the Hawkeye State, had he come in third, I don't think in, there would have been any reason to continue on to New Hampshire. Agreed. Well, speaking of being in the race, um, last week when we recorded the episode, Chris Christie's campaign didn't give us a heads up to let us know that they were going to be dropping out. Uh, so he, he, he wasn't a factor in Iowa. After Iowa, Asa Hutchinson, Vivek Ramaswamy both out of the race. So this is truly a, it's a three-person field. Ryan Blinky, we know he's out there. It is what it is. It's three people. <laughs> uh, you know, all, in all fairness, it, it's of three course. people. Of course. Um, who do you think has the momentum, whatever momentum there may be with coming in second or third, who do you think has the momentum coming out of Iowa and into New Hampshire? You know, Ron DeSantis can say, hey, I'm in second place. Uh, this is about collecting delegates, not just winning some sort of popular vote. Nikki Haley, as we heard her say, this is now a two-person race uh, between me and the former president. She has come out this week and said she's not going to debate Ron DeSantis anymore, uh, which led to him accusing her of, of totally ignoring New Hampshire. Who, who is, is helped most by the results in Iowa, uh, Nikki Haley or, or Ron DeSantis, Sue? Oh, it's definitely Nikki Haley. I mean, it's, uh, she's got the momentum. Uh, you know, Iowa is not great for uh, a great track record for picking who's going to be the nominee or who's going to be the president, but it, it is uh, a great launching pad uh, to help your campaign move forward. So she entered New Hampshire strong, stronger than people expected her to, to be coming out of Iowa. Um, so it's definitely recast what the plan was, and that's why you see DeSantis moving to South Carolina, to your point, Matt, as well. So it was, it's definitely a, a big plus for, for Haley. Yeah, and, and I'll just chime in too. I mean, it, this is a good question and we have to ask it. Who has momentum out of Iowa, out of the second and third place finishers, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis? And I agree with Sue, it's Nikki Haley, but boy, I mean, Donald Trump's just so far ahead coming out of Iowa. Sure, here it's a little bit closer and he's sort of in recent polls stayed stagnant to where he was. Nikki Haley has come up a little bit, but we're still talking 15, 16 percentage points. And so if Tuesday comes and goes and Nikki Haley can't beat him. I think I mean, she's got to have a first place finish here to bring people into the conversation and be like, look, this actually is a race that is taking place between two candidates. If she comes in second again, I think that's a really hard argument to make. This is Donald Trump's race to lose at this moment in time. And Tuesday is going to be the day where we find out if we actually have a race to talk about. Well, I'd push back a little bit on that and just say, um, you know, the, the, 
if, if this were a normal campaign year, <laughs> which it isn't in any way, shape, or form, and, and the candidate like Donald Trump had this 50% uh, portion of the, the, the caucus votes out of Iowa and looking like that in New Hampshire, the race would be completely over. There'd be, there'd be nothing happening. But because he's still vulnerable, because there's still a lot that can happen, and because there's still 50% of Republicans who, who would not vote for him, there's probably 30% who wouldn't vote for him under any circumstances, and then another, another batch who, who are on the fence about it. It's, I, don't, I still don't think Nikki Haley has to win New Hampshire to keep, to keep momentum. She does have to do exceptionally well in South Carolina, though, uh, and I think that's, that's where she's getting hit really hard right now. And I also think the longer Ron DeSantis stays in this race, the worse it becomes uh, for Nikki Haley. Because how are you gonna? How how can you legitimately sit there and say that you have a real shot to beat Donald Trump when one you lose you lose in Iowa to Ron DeSantis, and and who knows what happens you know in New Hampshire come Tuesday if Ron DeSantis and her are sort of neck and neck. There's no really impetus for him to drop out of the race, and he can again push back on this whole notion that it is just a two-person race. And so, I know you and I have also talked about um, sort of the perception, right, that, that the Haley campaign, especially Governor Sununu, sort of keep putting out these, these not predictions per se, but just really confidence uh, that, that, that she's going to really perform well in New Hampshire. I believe Jonathan Carl tweeted, you know, we saw a tweet from him, what, a month ago, Sununu saying she's going to win in a landslide. And, and now in the run-up to New Hampshire, you know, Sununu going back and saying, oh, well, we know we never predicted that, that she was going to win or, you know, it was, it's all about a really good showing in second place. Um, I, I'm just curious, what, what do you make of that? What does that tell you perhaps about where the campaign thinks it is, you know, just now a few days out from New Hampshire? Well, she's not a great candidate. <laughs> And I, 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 and it's not a great staff. And there's a lot of miscommunication happening, and a lot of the errors that she has made have been unforced. So um, I think this is just an example of uh, a candidacy and a campaign staff that could be doing a better job and understanding, you know, the basic sales 101: under promise, over deliver. And they keep getting over their skis on this, so they end up having to backtrack. If they had said, "Listen, we're hoping for second in Iowa," uh, and then, you know, and we just wanted to have a good showing, they would have been really victorious. If they had been saying in New Hampshire, "Listen, our goal is to keep the momentum going. We'll be thrilled with a second place finish," then everybody would be thrilled. But again, I think it's it's a bit of an um, I don't want to say an experience because I'm not sure exactly who's working on the campaign, but it does reek of we're not doing this as effectively. And then you look at Donald Trump's campaign staff, which is locking up delegates, doing all sorts of hocus pocus with the RNC. And you can see uh, she's got a, she and both DeSantis have had challenges having a solid campaign staff to deliver a winning presidential campaign uh, candidate. And well, on that's top of right. That, I mean, we haven't. Oh, sorry. sorry about it. we just one. We haven't necessarily. We've seen Trump. We've seen DeSantis go with Nikki Haley. I don't think we've seen yet the full force of the Trump machine target Nikki Haley uh, on, on issues, on, on personality, and you know the the I guess Trump card for lack of a better word. You thought you thought I you thought I was good enough to come work as my UN ambassador. Why why am I such a bad person now? Um, so so that's just another sort of element at play there, Matt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, to Sue's point, you know. 
both of those campaigns, DeSantis and Haley, have had their struggles as we've gone through this in terms of organization. But the Trump side of the coin, it seems like this may be his most organized campaign efforts in the three that we've seen from him on a presidential uh, level. He even said while he was in Iowa that back in 2016, they really didn't know uh, what they were doing. This time around, they had their strong ground game in place and it came to fruition. And so, you know, you look at a candidate like Donald Trump, who for a lot of people, uh, they're going to vote for him no matter what. To add on to that, you have a great campaign staff now that's actually doing the groundwork. Uh, that can be a scary thing if you're a Nikki Haley or a Ron DeSantis. So speaking of Ron DeSantis, what does he have to do in New Hampshire? You know, there was, we, we saw that he, you know, after Iowa went directly to South Carolina to start campaigning there. He is in New Hampshire. He is, he is meeting voters, um, sort of doing the glad handing retail politics that you have to do in New Hampshire. Is, is his campaign at stake come Tuesday, uh, depending on what happens? No, no I mean, I, I, go ahead, Matt. Go ahead, Sue. I mean, it sounds like we have the same answer. It's that I, I don't think he's done at New Hampshire. I mean, he's moving on to South Carolina for a reason and trying to see if he can gain some momentum there or at least take a little bit of stock away from Nikki Haley, who, of course, that will be her home state. And so trying to compete on those footing, I think, you know, um, that's a – a measured strategic uh, choice that he's making to go down there because he doesn't think he's going to have that big wave here in New Hampshire. So why waste your time? Let's move on to South Carolina, see if we can build momentum there and on to other early voting states, particularly Super Tuesday, where uh, certainly he could see a momentum boost there if he can make it. Yeah, it's all about return on investment, right? And it's he doesn't have that much money. He doesn't have that much time. It, and South Carolina is make or break for him. Lots of, lots of candidates over the years have just, you know, discounted New Hampshire. You know, what, I think what New Hampshire and Iowa do is that they force people, force candidates to become better candidates. Uh, and um, Barack Obama was not a great candidate until he got to Iowa. Jimmy Carter was not a great candidate until he got to Iowa. And I can list a number of people who didn't make it through Iowa um, at, at all because of how difficult uh, it is to campaign for president. So uh, again, it's not always the results from these two early states, but it's what the, can what the candidates and the campaigns learned from them. I guess what stands out to me is you never wanna, you never wanna write somebody's obituary you know, before they're dead. Um, and it seems like Ron DeSantis is kind of doing that. When you look at some of the comments that he's made about the, the campaign's media strategy um, in the, in the run-up, you know, sort of, you know, ignoring what he considered corporate media, which I, I got to think is mainstream CNN, MSNBC, you know, all the, all the four networks. Um, and instead, you know, and even Fox to, to a certain degree, and instead just sort of relying on name recognition. I believe it was um, Dave Abrams who was doing, who was uh, uh, on the comm staff, you know, tell him, hey, you're not running for re-election in Florida. A lot of people out there don't know who you are. You need to sort of blanket the media and, and get your face out there. And he ignored that advice. And now he's come out and said, maybe, maybe that was a mistake. And then you look at his comments in Iowa on Donald Trump, you know, accusing Fox News. I think the phrase he used was bringing a Praetorian guard for, for Donald Trump and, and, and the difficulty that he's had to sort of push through that, that narrative. So I think maybe he might start seeing or, or be seeing uh, the writing on the wall. But Matt, I know you had a chance to speak with him this week. What sort of sense did you get being on the campaign bus sitting face to face with him? Yeah, I mean, I think you can see that there is a sense of where this campaign might be headed. I think he's starting to sort of use words that show that he recognizes that his campaign hasn't 
uh, picked up the amount of momentum that he was hoping for it to. Part of that, you know, is is being shown in the fact that he's not spending much time here in New Hampshire, that he's heading straight uh, for South Carolina. And it can also be seen just from the fact, you know, that in Iowa, he only finished in second, way behind the front runner, Donald Trump, where he poured a ton of his resources into. And so certainly as we talked with him on the campaign bus, you could sort of feel uh, how he is feeling about his campaign at this uh, point in time. We asked him specifically about his decision to go set, go to South Carolina right after Iowa to return to South Carolina uh, before the New Hampshire primary takes place. And then we actually had a chance to speak with Nikki Haley about all of those decisions DeSantis is making. Take a listen to what both of them had to say. You beat the polling expectations there in Iowa that had just come out a day or two sure. beforehand. NBC 10 Boston just released a poll today that shows Trump and Haley sort of at the top, you down at 5%. I guess, do you feel like you can be competitive here, that you can beat the expectations? Well, we always overperform the polls, so we sure. will do that for sure. Ultimately, what we're doing is accumulating delegates. We accumulated delegates in Iowa. We'll accumulate delegates in New Hampshire. Ambassador, Governor DeSantis is already heading to South Carolina this weekend. Do you think he could actually give you a challenge in your home state? He's closer to zero than he is to me. I mean, he's invisible in New Hampshire. He's invisible in South Carolina. We're focused on Trump. That's the key. We were focused on DeSantis in Iowa. We're no longer focused on him. It's Trump in New Hampshire and Trump in South Carolina. So you can tell Nikki Haley, again, is really bringing it back to that this is a one-on-one -on -one race between her and Donald Trump. She basically says that uh, DeSantis is invisible in both states, in all states, and he's no longer up for the GOP nomination. All right, before we move forward, let's go ahead and get the predictions. Uh, Sue, we'll start with you. Give me, give me first, second, and third place in New Hampshire. Who, who, who do you think comes home? Well, I'm going to say DeSantis is third. I'm going to start there. How about that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated. I've been, I've been talking to a lot of folks in New Hampshire about the sort of unknown voter in New Hampshire. You've got the independents. You've got the undecideds. You've got the Democrats who have changed party. You've got the youth vote, and you've got the folks who are concerned about abortion access rights. So if there's some magic potion that comes together and everyone gets out and actually goes to vote and Nikki Haley has a strong get out the vote ground game, um, I think she can be like a, a, just a whisker away from first place and be right behind Trump in second. Matt? Yeah, I'm following suit. DeSantis in third, Haley in second, Trump in first. I think Trump probably takes it pretty decisively, but not the amount that we saw in Iowa. It will certainly be way closer here in New Hampshire. All right, I'm going to just buck the trend. I'm going to say DeSantis third, Trump second, Haley first. And here's my reasoning. As Sue mentioned, those independent voters, those folks who, who switched parties registration in, in the primary, we've talked in the past. I wonder if there are those Democrats out there who say, let me switch, let me vote for Nikki Haley just to hedge my bet. If a Republican is going to beat Joe Biden, I would rather have it be Nikki Haley than Donald Trump. I think those folks outweigh the folks who are maybe sort of these agents of chaos and saying, I want to vote for Trump because I think he has the worst odds to beat Joe Biden. So I'm going to say DeSantis, Trump, and Haley, and, and who knows, maybe Governor Sununu is ultimately uh, proved right. Uh, just, just real quick, uh, on the Democratic side, do you think Joe Biden wins with this write-in campaign, or, or do Dean Phillips or Marion Williamson, who, I don't even know if Marion Williamson's on the ballot. Um, do you think they, she, they she make filed. any sort of headway? Yeah, yeah she Mary filed. Williamson filed yeah. Okay, okay, so she'll be on the ballot, but do you think, do you think the write-in campaign is ultimately successful? No. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, okay, there you go. I, I don't think so. I, I just don't think, boy, it's hard enough to get people to come out and vote in the first place, let alone have them come in and write down a person's name who isn't even technically on the ballot. So 
I mean, you know, maybe he'll he'll have a good showing and they'll sort of hang their hat on that. But I don't think he yeah. I don't think he wins New Hampshire. On and that. write it, and you got to write it correctly too. You have to have yeah. it. You know, it has to yeah. match what it's supposed to be. So I, you know, you got to spell Robinette. Yeah, yeah, you that's really it. tough. Well, who, well, who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe Dean Phillips has pissed off enough people to have them come out and and just write in Joe Biden so yep. that Phillips can uh, can get out of the race and, and stop you know causing a bit of a or stop being I guess a bit of a nuisance to some mm-hmm. in the Biden campaign. His ads, his ads have been good. I'll give them that. They're they're creative. You know the whole where is Joe Biden thing. Um, but I know. It, it appears that Joe Biden is comfortably going to be the Democratic nominee. I think it's, it's safe to say that now. And, and tailgate coffee sessions apparently tailgate, not going very yeah. well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let let let's come on home. Uh, Governor Maura Healey delivered her State of the Commonwealth address on Wednesday, her first one. Uh, she was at the State House talking about the the promises she's made, the promises she's kept. Uh, she asked the legislature for a few things. Uh, she mentioned some of her goals. Uh, she did not mention the $375 million uh, budget cut that we discussed on last week's edition. Uh, but, Sue, we watched this together. I'll start with you, just, just your overall impressions about uh, Governor Healy's uh, address. Well, first of all, I think her, her, um, her speaking skills have increased enormously. Um, and not that she was a bad speaker before, but she really has taken up her, her, or, her order skills way up here and um, definitely uh, has has been taking any any coaching that she's gotten as a good basketball player uh, and gave what I thought was a really great and solid speech. Um, you know, it's an interesting um, trouble that, that the state's in where she was told the Globe uh, today, we're talking on Thursday, told the Globe that we're still seeing revenue growth in the state, um, but at the same time, the state keeps projecting we're going to get more revenue than we do get, and then they have to cut things. So she's in this funny bind of having to communicate that things are great, except for that cut, and I'm going to get the money that I need in order to do these promises from the things that we passed before. So it's a very complicated message that she had to communicate. Um, You know, these are always victory laps, these state of the state, the state of the cities. But I do think that she laid out a a strong plan of what she wants to accomplish moving forward, whether or not the state lawmakers are on board with her or not, um, that remains to be seen. Matt, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of want to hop on what Sue said there. Is I've always thought that these that these speeches are always sort of meaningless in a way, is because we go through them and, like you said, they're taking a victory lap. There's some substance there, but that's why we're all here for the state of the city or the state of the Commonwealth. And so, you know, you sort of give it a grain of salt uh, when you sort of try to dissect these things uh, in the postmortems. But, you know, I thought it was interesting. I mean, you look back on 2023 and the things that the legislature and her prioritized, you know, the gun bill as well as tax reform and, and those sort of steps. I thought it was interesting that she said she wants to move forward with a child care sort of effort in 2024. I know that's something that uh, Senate President Spilka has said that's something she would like to do in 2024 is getting a child care bill across the finish line. And of course, we heard a lot of uh, the similar talking points of trying to get the T traveling on time finally, as well as those school improvements as well, which we know is important to her. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what she can accomplish here in her second year. We saw we saw some some interesting things at the at the very beginning. Uh, we saw her introduce her partner, the, the Commonwealth's first first partner, 
uh, I believe, as, as Governor Healy said. And then we saw her take a selfie with Kim Driscoll. I don't think that's ever happened <laughs> yeah, in the history exactly. of the state of the Commonwealth. Yeah, um, we also had the first female governor, Jane Swift, uh, there. Right? And they, they had a moment together. So that was, and, and uh, former Governor Mike Dukakis, who I think is 90, uh, who is also just sort of the icon of let's fix the MBTA. There's also some messaging going on by having yeah. him there. Uh, so as we were watching this speech uh, and, and looking at just the, the copy, I sort of took a rough count of the, the accomplishments that she mentioned, the asks that she made, and the goals that she laid out. By my count, a rough count, 21 accomplishments, 8 asks, and 12 goals. To, and I, I differentiated asks and goals, asked her things that I think she's going to need the legislature to pass or she's going to need funding for. And then the goals are just things that are already in the pipeline funded that she just wants to expand on. In terms of her ask, there's ones that we've talked about before, you know, the HERO Act as it relates to veterans, the Affordable Homes Act. She uh, introduced gateway to pre-K earlier this week, and the goal here is to bring um, high-quality preschool to 26 gateway communities uh, at low cost or free cost to, to parents uh, by the year 2026. Uh, she announced the literacy launch and, and getting you know better literature in, in some of the libraries and in schools in Massachusetts. Uh, transportation investments, mental health services for kids. One of the ones that stood out to me, permanent, permanent reduced fare for T riders, which is something that, that's, that's been um, a real desire for, for a lot of folks who, who take the T and then disaster resiliency fund. And then on the goal side, she said she's gonna file a balanced budget next week. Uh, she wants to get more cities and towns complying with the MBTA communities law. Um, no cost HVAC training at schools, which I thought was, was interesting. Uh, and a new tourism strategy were among the, uh, the goals that she made. Now, obviously the big question being, you know, a few weeks after she says, we don't have enough tax revenue, so we've got to cut $370 million out of the budget. How do you pay for all this stuff? How do you, how does Governor Maura Healey become a tax and spend and cut governor? Sue, how does she, how does she sort of square that circle? Well, state officials say they're going to have $1.3 billion from the surtax revenue from the so-called millionaire's tax, which was, remember, earmarked to go to education and to transportation. So if their projections are right, and of course we just talked about how their projections were not right on how much uh, tax revenue they were going to get uh, this past quarter, they should have enough money to do those things. And again, this is the complicated message. I'm, I'm my, new, my new reason for getting out of bed every morning is to find out who keeps making these projections and why they're wrong all the time, because she could have taken a victory lap saying... Things are going up. Our revenue is increasing. We hit our goal as opposed to having to explain we didn't hit our goal. So you're not going to get the money that you promised, even though you're going to get some money because things are good. And that's that's not a good place to be. Matt, you, 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 you're hearing a lot of national politicians talking about we're spending too much. We need to lower taxes. Uh, your thoughts on, on the governor uh, having to sort of thread this needle of putting forth this ambitious agenda, but also having to pay for it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's why you're the governor of the state. you got to figure out how to get from point A to point B and get everything you want done uh, in the middle of it. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see as she goes throughout the year. I mean, she's got a lot to tout from 2023. So, you know, I don't think it's that big of a, a lift to be having to talk about this in the early part of 2024. I'm sure there are a lot of people across Massachusetts who feel like she will be able uh, to take them from point A to point B and get a lot of these different things done. There's a lot of things in there that I think Massachusetts Massachusetts residents are are happy to hear about. I don't I don't know if you guys want to talk about the Republican rebuttal too, but I just you know it's it's interesting. Yeah, that was going to be my next question: whether or not there was an appetite on 
on Beacon Hill from lawmakers to, to put this ambitious agenda into action. So, so Mac, what tell us about the, the rebuttal? Well, uh, the rebuttal was interesting when you just, you know, hear them say that they feel like we're spending too much money at this point. They're pointing out all the budget things that we're talking about right here. Maura Healy can try to explain it away all she wants, but the Republicans, of course, say they're going to be a hawk on spending throughout 2024. And they've got other things uh, they want to be fixed as well. They want the Republicans to, re or they want uh, the Democrats, rather, uh, to bend and restructure the right to shelter law, which we know is taking away millions of dollars right now to house migrants here in the state of Massachusetts. Massachusetts, 250 million is what we were talking about at the end of the year when they were going through that budget uh, 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 fix there uh, right before we talked about trying to uh, get the budget back on track yet again. So, you know, the Republicans have their complaints and, and they're feeling a little momentum right now, I think, off of all that budget stuff, as well as a few uh, different areas, including one of the seats that they were able to flip. Sue, so what do you think? It was year one of the, of the Healy tenure and that relationship between her and, and lawmakers good enough to, to, to get some of this stuff done? Well, I think it's more about how the relationship between the House members and the Senate members is. And if Healy is uh, skilled enough as a negotiator and a politician to get these two massive Democratic bodies to put aside some of their differences to deliver what you would think all the Democrats would agree on. I mean, this is one of the fun things about being in Massachusetts where you think, oh, the popular Democratic governor puts forward these ideas and all the Democrats should just rubber stamp it. But there's a lot of issues that are going on between the House and the Senate. You will note in her speech that she did specifically call out um, President Karen Spilka and um, Mr. Mariano, yeah, as the, was, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the Speaker of the House, um, to, to, to kind of bring them together into the speech uh, and talked about their pet projects and things that they care about. But her job is, is going to be not so much with the Republicans. I mean, it's, it's great that they're unhappy and want to save money, but you know, no one's listening to them. So they could just have their, their rebuttal and go on, but she is going to have to bring the two, the house and, and the Senate together to enact some of these, to work together, to deliver some of these on these promises. Well, she's certainly starting to do her part. We know that she uh, testified uh, on the Affordable Homes Act that, that she wants to get passed to preserve, rehabilitate and, and build the new um, affordable housing uh, in, in the Commonwealth, which we know is a is a, a major crisis that, that needs to be addressed. So she, she's putting herself out there. As you said, Sue, I think uh, that was the most chipper, maybe, that, I, that, <laughs> that, I, that, I, that, I, that I've seen her. I think she was, she was really, you know, milking some of the applause lines, some of the laughter. Um, so the whatever, whatever coaching, if any, they're receiving, her and Michelle, it's working. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah. I think we saw two, two very good speeches. And not to say that they aren't good public, you know, orators, but I think we saw more more personality come out than we ever have before. And Corey, and I'll say I think that that's just not the two of them, but I think that in the way that um, social media works now oh. and um, TikTok and and clips, and it's a very different world right now than it was even four years ago. So uh, Mayor Marty Walsh or Governor Baker or Mayor Menino did not, as as leaders, have to be as as be as as good speakers oh. as as uh, the current politicians and elected officials do now, because I think the, the, the communication of that message now is at a new level for almost everybody in leadership positions. Gotcha. All right. 
Well, guys, we're going to leave it there. That is it for another edition of Taking Issue. We appreciate you joining us as always. It's going to be a very, very busy week slash weekend. Of course, we've got uh, live episodes of At Issue on Thursday and Friday at 7.30. And then join us Sunday morning starting at 9.30 for a full hour of coverage leading up to the New Hampshire primary. And, of course, we'll be there for our normal 11.30 time slot after Meet the Press on NBC 10 Boston. And then Matt, Sue, and I are... Headed on up to the Granite State, where we'll be there uh, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Once that final vote comes in, we have results. We'll talk to you on the backside of the New Hampshire primary. But for now, that's it. We'll talk to you all next week.